Uh, Do take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 17. There is a preoccupation that you find in the media with the private lives of public people. You can't stand in the line in a grocery store without watching the, seeing the magazines that are, that are there placed strategically so that you get to see their headlines. And typically speaking, the headlines that seem to grab our attention are those that tell us what has been going on, the latest scandal in someone's life, the latest struggle with... Uh, with their weight, or their marriage, or their fortune, or, or whatever it might be. There it is. It's glaring. It's, uh, it's been reported. You wonder how people get to know all these things. You wonder how, it's, how the private lives of these public figures ever manages to hit the magazines. I think they make up a lot of it in order just to get our attention going. But this evening, what we're beginning to look at this evening, we'll take a few weeks, I think, to to look at this chapter in John's Gospel, is an insight, a very rare insight, into the particular aspect of the private life of the most significant person in human history. Here at a crucial point in his life, within hours of his arrest, trial, execution, and burial. We find him engaged in prayer to God, his Father. What is of particular interest to us, of course, is that as we listen to him pray, we know that we are listening to the voice of God, the Son, speaking to God, the Father. We are having this unique opportunity of overhearing God, speaking to God. Here in John 17, we have, if you like, the, what has been described by one old Puritan as the inner sanctuary. If Scripture is all holy, this is the inner sanctuary. This is the holy of holies. This is the innermost part of all of holy Scripture, giving us this most exalted and most intimate insight into our Lord's relationship with his heavenly Father. I have to confess that if there's a passage of Scripture that I love more than any other, then it's this passage of Scripture. People often ask me for my life verse. I don't have a life verse, but I do have a life chapter, and this is it. It has sustained me and instructed me throughout my life and ministry. John Knox, one of the great reformers, a great man in his day, Realizing at the end of his life that he was going to die, asked his wife to read this chapter to him. And it was as she read this chapter where he first cast anchor, he said, in his faith. It was as she read this chapter that he passed into the glory of which this chapter speaks. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, this scripture offers us the help we need in our lives, all our anxieties and troubles, all our uncertainties and hesitations, and so much of the unhappiness in our spiritual lives is to be traced simply to the fact that we do not realize what the Lord has provided for us. John 17 will help us. 
John 17 will help us to see with the Apostle Peter that you and I have been given as believers all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, that is, through the knowledge of God. This evening, however, I want to look at the chapter as it is in, on the surface a prayer. It is a prayer primarily. And while there are great depths to it, and we'll try to explore those in coming weeks, this evening I want to look at this simply as a prayer. That's the title it's given. That is what it is. Here is our Lord. He has spent this night comforting His disciples. And having comforted them, He now turns to prayer for them. Well, first of all, it's the prayer of Jesus, the teacher. It's the prayer of a teacher. There's a quaint old 17th century Puritan who said about this prayer, it is the greatest prayer that was ever offered on earth, and it followed the greatest sermon that was ever preached on earth. And there's no doubt about that. Where does it appear? Look at the passage. Where does it appear in John's gospel? Well, it appears after that great section 13 to 16 in which Jesus has been instructing his disciples. He's been speaking to them. He's been unveiling his heart to them. This is the most intimate, the most clear, the most precise and concise teaching that our Lord gives to his disciples throughout his ministry. It is his great farewell. He, he is giving them the priorities that are on his mind and heart for them as they face his departure and they face life without him. It's in this sermon that he speaks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth. It is in this sermon that he reminds them that in this world his people will have tribulation. It's in this sermon that he talks about his own intimacy with the Father. I and the Father are one. It's in this sermon that he reveals that there will be one who will betray him. It's in this sermon that he tells us to love one another. It's a great sermon. And now that he's delivered the sermon, now that the formal teaching is over, the teacher's work is not finished quite yet. Having talked to his disciples about the Father, he now talks to his Father about the disciples. He brings them before his Father. Now, if you listen to the prayer, you, you can see that at one level, it's, it's a kind of end-of-term report. It's a, a report on his own performance. He can say here, I have revealed you to those whom you have given me. And again, in this prayer, he says, I gave them the words you gave me. Here he summarizes one aspect of his ministry. He had come to be a teacher, to be a prophet, to instruct these people in the things of God. And at each point, he says, he had been faithful to the Word of God. He'd been faithful to the charge that God had given to him. He had held back nothing that they needed to hear. He had revealed to them all they needed to know in order to know God for themselves. And if at the end of our lives, at the end of my life, we can say this, I can say this, that I have held back nothing that was profitable to your soul, what a, what a great thing that would be. I have revealed you to those whom you have given me. I gave them the words you gave me. And throughout John's gospel, this has been Jesus' 
ministry. In fact, they could come to him and they could say to him, you alone have the words of eternal life. They recognized that in his teaching, in his preaching, in his prophetic ministry, in his teaching ministry, he had spoken words from God to their hearts. And you know, at the end of the day, it isn't just that God in Christ appoints ministers to preach the Word of God, but all of us at one level or another are called upon in our everyday lives with our friends or our colleagues or our children or our grandchildren or our nieces and nephews to say something about what we find in the Bible. Somebody asks you a question, you have to give an answer. When you're giving that answer, what are you doing? You are teaching them. And so we all find ourselves, at one level or another, having to do what the Lord Jesus does with His disciples, telling His disciples what He knew. We are to tell people that we come across what we know. Jesus reports on His own performance, and He also reports on their performance. In this prayer, He says about them, the disciples, they have obeyed your word. They accepted the words that you gave me. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now, do you see his, his description here of the people who have been on the receiving end of this teaching? Do you see the description, what he says about them? They'd obeyed the word, they'd accepted the word, they'd come to know with certainty, and they believed, they believed that he was sent from God. And there you have, if you will, a prescription for how to hear a sermon. There you have a prescription as to how to hear the Word of God when it is taught to you. This is what we come to do this evening. We come to obey the Word of Jesus. He comes and He speaks, and we obey it. We accept the words as the very words of God. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, that at that church, one of the earliest letters we have written to any church, he says about that church, you received from me my message for what it really is, the very words of God. In other words, when you were listening to me, you thought you, you were able to distinguish what was being said from the person saying it. You were able to, to blot out the person who was speaking to you. And as the Word of God came to you, you recognized what is being said is the very Word of God. And you received it, Jesus says, about His people. They obeyed it. They accepted it. They knew with certainty. And they believed and brothers and sisters, here is how we come to believe, and here is how we come to know with certainty. My own Christian life, what, what has brought certainty, certainty about my knowledge of God and my knowledge of eternal life, what has brought certainty into my life is that I've been able to be in the Word of God every day, and the more I'm in the Word of God, the more that knowledge, that certainty, that that ability to know with certainty grows and deepens because the more you're in the Word of God, the more self-evident it is, the more clear it is, the more convictional it is. Its power begins to affect you and infect you. It is a powerful word. Jesus gets full marks for faithful and effective teaching. Jesus then is the great teacher. Now, there are many people in our land today who are quite prepared to accept Jesus as teacher. 
And they will say that. They, they think Jesus is a great teacher. But they have absolutely no idea what he taught. And they would be embarrassed to find out how certain he was and how definite he was that it was in listening to his teaching that made the difference for time and eternity. He was very clear on that. Do you see as he's speaking to his father here? They obeyed your word. They've accepted the words you gave me. They knew with certainty that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. And Jesus has said in this very last sermon, he has said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Those were the words they accepted. Those were the words they believed. Those were the words that led them to know with certainty that he had come from God and to believe that God had sent him. And as the world listens to us and the world hears this, then their appreciation of Jesus the teacher begins to recede somewhat. They, they don't really want a Jesus who teaches this kind of thing. They're quite happy with some of the moral things that Jesus says or some of the things about loving one another that Jesus says, but he says those things in the context of saying big things about who he is himself. And you have to come to terms with who he is in and of himself. It is with him you have to do. Before ever you think about what he says about other things, it is with him you have to do. We're listening to Jesus, the teacher. It is as the teacher that he claims to be, in fact, the God of Israel himself. He demands that he be worshipped as the God of Israel himself. That's what he's doing in that series of claims that he makes that John records, in which he uses the divine self-descriptor. I, I am. I, I am the bread of life. I, I am the good shepherd. I, I am the resurrection and the life. I, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Before Abraham was, I, I am. That is the language of the God of Israel. It is the language of the God who appeared to Moses by the burning bush. And when Moses says to him, who shall I say has sent me? God says to him, tell them, I am that I am. I, I am. I, I am. Tell them, I, I am has sent you. And in the language of Isaiah, over and over again in the book of Isaiah, I, I am the Lord and there is none besides me. Look unto me all the ends of the earth, for I, I am Lord and there is none beside me. Look and live. Here is Jesus the teacher. And he's been proclaiming himself because the only message that the world needs to hear is a message about Jesus Christ. Jesus is a faithful gospel preacher because he talks about himself. You and I are faithful gospel teachers when we talk about him. And here is Jesus the teacher speaking. And now, of course, 
He is praying, praying that that which he has spoken may take root in people's hearts, may find a resting place in people's lives. John Calvin writes about this and says this, Jesus here shows teachers an example that they should not only occupy themselves in sowing the word, but by mixing their prayers with it. They should implore God's help that his blessing would make the work fruitful in the lives of people. So you see, the preaching is only part of the work. Prayer is is the, the wholeness of the work. Teaching is part of the responsibility. Praying that word into people's lives, praying for the teaching, throughout the teaching, and after the teaching is absolutely vital because we believe this is not only a man a man's work. This is not simply a matter of human ability at communication. This is not simply an issue of how, how uh, precise or eloquent the speaker or teacher may be. This is, in fact, nothing to do with that. The most ineloquent teacher can be used by the Spirit of God to pierce a person's heart. One snowy day in Cambridgeshire in England, a 16-year-old boy who wasn't able to make it to his own church slipped into a little primitive Methodist chapel on the way to get out of the cold and the snow. And he sat somewhere up on this side of the building. It was a small building. There were only some really, really old people in the building. And he sat halfway up there. And the preacher had not been able to get there that night. The snow had prevented him from getting there. And so one of the older men in the congregation decided that since there was a visitor, this young man, he better do something and say something. And he got up onto the pulpit and uh, he didn't have a sermon prepared, but he had a text. And he said, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God. Now, did you notice, he said, it says, look, young man, have you looked It was rather pointed. You wouldn't get off of that today, I don't think. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon sat there that night, and as that old man, with inarticulately, repeating that verse again and again and again with a different emphasis each time, the Spirit of God took that word and it went into his heart. And he was born again of the Spirit and became the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world ever. We need to pray the Word in. Do you know, I've been preaching for 44 years. And I've preached in churches that haven't prayed for me. And I've preached in churches that have prayed for me. And I can tell the difference. And I'm telling you something else. You could tell the difference. Because the preaching of the Word of God is aided by the prayers of God's people. That's why when the apostles, you know, were realizing that their work was getting, they were being diverted from the work, and they appointed a diaconate so that they could focus on their work. The work they wanted to focus on was what? Prayer and the ministry of the Word. It's prayer that transforms a lecture into a sermon. 
It's prayer that calls down the power of God upon the Word of God. It's prayer that hitches up the carriage of truth to the engine of God's almightiness. It's prayer that is the vehicle God chooses to use to open eyes to see and ears to hear and mouths to speak the praises of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here we have Jesus the teacher at prayer linking his work with the mighty power of God the Father. And we learn from his example that we should pray for the work and pray during the work and pray after the work. In fact, we learn from Jesus that in many respects, prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. It does the business. And it's in prayer that we most demonstrate our utter our utter dependence upon God. And if the church has lost its moral authority in our country today, if it's lost its moral authority, it's because she either has not accepted the words of Jesus, obeyed them, and then and therefore knows with certainty that he came from God and has believed it. Or, or she has ceased in practice to cast herself on God's help in believing prayer. Do you know there is a spiritual principle that the battery of spiritual life and health will continually run down unless it is regularly recharged by believing prayer. So as we come to this chapter, we see, we are hearing, overhearing, the prayer of Jesus, the teacher. Secondly, we're overhearing the prayer of Jesus, the Son. I think this is probably the prayer we should call the Lord's Prayer. The one that we call the Lord's Prayer was, is actually ours, our prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. It's the prayer the Lord taught His disciples to use when they pray, when we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But this is the Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus Himself at prayer. And we are given this great privilege of overhearing the son communing with his father. Five times he uses the address, the Abba, the intimate, affectionate word or name for his heavenly father. After scouring all of Jewish literature, Professor Joachim Jeremias has declared this use of the word Abba by Jesus to be utterly unique. Jesus' address to God here is even more intimate than the address used in the Lord's Prayer. We are to say, our Father in heaven, which remind ourselves that our Father is exalted. Jesus here comes and speaks to Father, Abba. You can see it, verse 1, Abba. Verse 5, Abba. 11, Holy Abba. 24, Abba. 25, righteous 
Abba. We're given an insight into the one who's praying. His relationship with the Father, of course, is the relationship of the eternal Son to his Father from all eternity. That, that is true. He is praying here. Why? Because he is in his humanity, in his humanity. He is praying. He's facing the death, uh, the death of the cross. And as he comes in prayer in his incarnate humanity, he's pouring out the, the burden of his heart. Here we have the man, Christ Jesus, who nonetheless is conscious that he is the Son of God. The writer to the Hebrews says, you know, that when he prayed, there were, he prayed often with strong crying and tears. Our Lord was moved in his humanity, moved by the need to address his heavenly Father in prayer, not only for himself, but for his disciples and all the believers who were to come. He prays to his Father about this great plan of salvation formed and worked out by the Father and the Son in the leisure of eternity before the universe was even brought into being. A plan that concerned you and me in the great future of splendor that the glory of God promises to you and to me. Once you realize as you listen to this prayer, as we shall see in other studies that you are listening to references back in time to a point before there was time, a point before there was anything material that had been made outside of God that had been made as we discover him referring to, to conversations held within the very Trinity itself before there was anything created, and that in those conversations the Father and the Son are talking about His people, talking about you, talking about you by name, not as a general mass, but as individual men and women. Once you grasp that, you will never feel insignificant ever again. Brother and sister, you will never feel insignificant ever again. In Matthew, Jesus speaks of that understanding that existed between himself and the Father when he says this, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Well, the Son, in His humanity, prays to His Father. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when He is at that point, that tipping point of obedience, to go all the way to the cross, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, He prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible to you. Abba. And when at last he is committing his spirit to God, when he has gone through the ordeal of Calvary and is about then to die, he surrenders his spirit to God, calling out in a loud voice, Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And yet, as we listen to Jesus the Son in this prayer, we hear him speaking about others. In verse 24, he says, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. I want you to know them to know, verse 23, that you have loved them even as you loved the Son. Who is he speaking about? What he's speaking about is children. In chapter 1 of John's gospel, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become sons of God. Sons of God. I know the NIV wants to translate it children because it doesn't want anybody to be offended, but it's sons of God. Men and women become sons of God. They receive the inheritance. And by the way, that means, what does that mean? In heaven, you can't make any differentiations that we make here because we will all be sons of God. We are, in fact, already, as God's people, sons of God by God's election who in Jesus Christ believe. By eternal determination, lasting life, we now receive. That's our status in Christ. Because the sons are heirs. And we are all, whether we're men or women, sons of God, therefore heirs of the promises of God. Later on in the New Testament, we discover that this great right we have to come to, to our Father in heaven, our Abba in heaven, given by Jesus to his disciples in that lovely prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer that was given for us to use. The later New Testament tells us how it is that we are sons of God. He is the Son of God by nature. We are the sons of God by adoption. We've been brought into the family. We've been adopted into the family. But better than adoption, we just don't have something written down somewhere. Here's a, a, a certificate that you are adopted into the family of God. That would be a wonderful thing to have. But we not only receive a certificate saying that we belong to the family of God, we receive the Spirit of God. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The very Spirit of sonship. The Spirit that enables us to cry out with a deep elemental cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit that gives us confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Christ. You and I are adopted children. Whatever other people think of you, whatever you think of yourself, whether people think you're unimpressive or unimportant, whether you yourself feel undervalued, overlooked, or even rejected or dismissed, you come to this prayer and you realize, as you listen to the Son of God speaking to His Father, that you are seeing a window into the relationship that by grace you now have with God as your Father. And that your destiny is to experience and know the love that the Father has for the Son. That you have loved them 
Past tense. From all eternity. God didn't love you because Jesus went to the cross for you. He loved you before Jesus. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He already loved you before the foundation of the world. Well, thirdly, this is the prayer of Jesus, the priest. It's often called the high priestly prayer. And again, we'll look at this later on, but as far back as Cyril of Alexandria in the 5th century, this prayer has been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's often called a priest in the Bible. In Hebrews, he's called our great high priest. The, the Scripture focuses on this being his present work. He, he, he died for us. He rose for us. He went to heaven. What does he do for us now? He is our great high priest. He makes intercession for us. Professor James Denny, one of the great Scottish theologians. You had a great English theologian here this morning. Uh, James Denny is one of the great Scottish theologians uh, from which the English have learned a lot. He says this, uh, Christianity depends almost as much on what Christ is and does now at this present moment as on what he was and did on earth. The Lord belongs not only to the past, but also to the present and the future. What is he doing now? Well, what he's doing now is this, this Lord Jesus, this almighty, ever-present King of grace and priest of his people. He is constantly before the throne of God, interceding for us. Before the throne of God, above I have a strong a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. He is praying for his people. And you and I are priests of God too. We are a royal priesthood, people says. Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. And what does a priest do? Well, a priest represents other people. And we represent other people. Who is praying for America in this primary season, in this election year? Who is praying for America, for her people, that they would have discernment as they cast their vote? Who is praying for America that God would be kind enough to spare her? Who is praying for America that the work of God and the Word of God and the Christ of God would once again be proclaimed over this land? Who is doing that? Who is interceding? Well, it's the church of God or it's nobody. It's us or it's nobody. We are the only hope they have, the only hope this nation has, to be pleading, Almighty God, to be besieging the battlements of heaven, that God would in His mercy show kindness to this nation. But how do we ever feel? Do we ever feel as if that's what we're doing? They were, as it were, laying siege to the battlements of heaven and arguing the promises of God 
to God. But Lord, you said. But Lord, you said. And praying for his church. The apple of his eye, his bride on earth. Praying for his church, that his church would be protected from the spirit of the age. That his church would be kept from being from following the culture of this world and being dissolved into the culture of this world and transformed into its nature, that God would protect his people. Who is going to do that? It is only the church will do that. Because we are priests to God. And just as we hear our Lord Jesus before his trial with with what is all coming up in his life about which he knew. He is here. He's in the place of prayer. And he's coming before God with these matters. And he's spreading them out before his heavenly Father. And he's praying for the church of God. Brothers and sisters, we have this great privilege and responsibility of praying for the church of God. Praying for the ministry of the Word of God. Praying for the extension of the kingdom of God. Praying for the mercy of God on our fellow countrymen in these days. That is our passion. This is the prayer of Jesus, the teacher. Jesus, the son. And Jesus, the priest. Well, there's more, but we're not going to do that tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we find ourselves sometimes having to instruct others formally or informally in the things we know about you. We pray that you would take our words, whether they're said at the dinner table or over coffee in a cafe or on our commute or on the phone or from a pulpit. We pray you would take our words and that you would make them effective in the hearts and lives of people. Lord, we too are sons of God by gracious adoption, privileged to come to you and call you our Father, our Abba in heaven. Grateful that we have free access to you, that nobody can turn us away, tell us we can't speak to you, But rather we have confidence and boldness not just to stand and shout as it were at you from a distance but to come right into the very innermost sanctuary of your presence and there to speak to you as child to father. We thank you that while human fathers may fail that you are a holy father and a righteous father and that you will never abuse your children And you will never let them down. And that you will never fail to be there for them. That you are the Father that we need. We thank you that as priests, as Jesus is our priest, so we are priests to God. We bring our families. We bring our friends. We bring our colleagues We bring our country before you and pray that in your mercy you would hear from heaven and that you would stoop down to shower blessings 
upon this place and these people. For your glory's sake. Amen.